Let's pray together. Father, I confess I bring uh, little tonight other than my uh, vanity and insecurity. Uh, so, Lord, I confess that I really need you. And, Lord, I uh, know uh, these people. Lord, I love these people. And, um, Lord, I pray you would speak to them. And, uh, Lord, encourage our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, this <clears throat> this summer, I went to our denomination's annual meeting. Uh, we call it General Assembly, or a GA for short. And um, at GA, there was there are always all these seminars going on. There was this one seminar in particular given by name a guy named Brian Fickert, uh, and I was real excited about going uh, to his seminar. While I was running late, uh, I get to the entrance, the door into the room of the, of the seminar, and I look at the front, I was, and he was already starting to present, and my mouth dropped. I couldn't believe it. I mean, this guy wrote a, a really well-known book uh, called When Helping Hurts, How to Alleviate Poverty Without Hurting the Poor. It's a great book. Uh, it's really accessible, very readable. I encourage you all, all to read it. But, uh, I, and when my mouth hit the floor, it wasn't because he was, like, beautiful, uh, per se. Um, my mouth hit the floor because he's 6 foot 11 inches tall. Now, I've seen people who are 6 foot 11 inches tall. They played basketball for UK, and I saw them on campus when I was a student. We don't usually see people who are 6 foot 11 inches tall. It particularly kind of uh, rocks me a little bit because I don't see people taller than me very often. Um, but my, once I kind of got over myself, I calmed down, I settled into my seat, I started tracking with this presentation, and I really zoned in. And he began to describe some realities that I had been sensing for a long time. He, he, he was able to put into words, because of his research, some of these themes. He's a really smart guy. Um, he has a PhD from Yale in economic theory. So he's a tall, smart guy. Um, and he began to talk about uh, how the traditional belief is among economists is that a society's happiness is directly proportionate to that society's economic success or failure. In other words, people are happy when the economy is good and people are miserable when the economy is bad. But he began to bring this premise into question. He says that research shows that from 1972 until 2008, the average income per person in the U.S. had steadily been going up. 36 years running, over the course of those 36 years, it had gone up. But the level of happiness remained the same. And then he showed from 2006 until 2016, average income continued to go up, but happiness actually, instead of remaining level, declined. So it really debunks this traditional view that economists have. But the rest of us, we're not all that surprised, are we? We know. We know that we live in a place and a time of extraordinary physical prosperity. We're safer, we're healthier, we're more comfortable than any people have ever been. Most of us, anyways, we're not very panicked about food or shelter tonight. But where has all this left us? Where are we with this being the state of things? Well, we're acutely aware of what money can't buy, aren't we? Each day, we're in search of something that satisfies us, that gives us meaning. It's like the quote from C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis, one of his favorite, famous quotes is, If we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, 
the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. Some of you might not be Christians here tonight, and you even have these longings for satisfaction. You don't have to be religious to have these kind of yearnings. You may believe that we're nothing more than products of biological mutations. You might believe that we're just here because of a bang that happened four billion years ago. You might believe that no, that, 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 that you're almost certain that when you die, you're just going to be left to rot in a six-foot hole. But you have a longing for lasting impact. You know that there's something more, and you yearn for more because there actually is more. So this new phenomenon, this new phenomenon of unparalleled physical economic prosperity with decreasing happiness, it highlights a human reality. That we've always been starved for joy. And we see that in our text today. Matthew chapter 2, verses 9 to 12. Let's read it together. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Remember these guys. We talked about them last week. These magi, the wise men, so some call them. Well, who are they? Well, they're Persian astrologers. They've traveled 900 miles from Persia to Bethlehem. And the reason that they've got some faint idea of these Old Testament promises, that they had read about this Old Testament promise that the king of the Jews is going to be born in this obscure town in Judea called Bethlehem, and it's going to be accompanied with a star. The reason they know this is because 400 years prior, the Jews had lived among the Persians in exile. And presumably, there were some copies of what we call the Old Testament, the Jewish scriptures, had been laying around, and these Jewish astrologers began to read through them and find this promise. But what gets them off their keisters? What gets them off their keisters from reading the Old Testament about the king of the Jews to actually going and doing something about it? I think it was because that they lacked this joy. They lacked meaning in life. They wanted something more in life than they were experiencing, so they made this very long, dangerous trek And when they did, they were converted. Have you ever thought about the way you were converted? What are the chances that the Magi, we don't know if there's three, there are three gifts. There may be more than three. It could have been 12 or 28 or 52. Who knows? But how did these Magi come to faith? They they live in Persia. They don't live in Jerusalem. They're pagans, not Jewish. So it really is a miracle. It's a miracle that they come to faith. It just so happened that they came across Micah chapter 5 with this promise. And 900 miles later, they find Jesus and their lives are changed forever. Well, think about yourself. It just so happened that you were born into a Christian family where Jesus is treasured and you came to faith. It just so happened that you were dating a girl who brought you to church where you believed. 
It, it just so happened that you were working with a Christian who patiently loved you, and that's what Christ used to woo you to Jesus. It, it just so happened that when your life fell apart, you had a Christian roommate who was there to witness to Jesus' love for you, and you were converted. And maybe that's you tonight. Maybe you just so happen to wander in here because you're more aware than ever that there's this emptiness that resides into your soul and you're looking for joy. Well, that's what happened for the Magi. Look at verses 10 and 11. In verse 10, you see this phrase, rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Uh, The the, the writer really says, um, uh, joyfully overjoyed with joy. See, rejoice is just the verbal form of the, of the noun joy. And the verb for rejoice is supplemented with the adverb exceedingly, and the noun is supplemented with, the noun joy is supplemented with the adjective great. So one way to put it is that the magi are really, 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 really happy. And if I had to guess the magi, they knew. They knew they were joy-starved, just like we know we're joy-starved. We, we know this on an intellectual level. We know that Christmas isn't going to fix anything. We know that sex, money, fame, and power aren't really going to make us happy. And then something happens. We, 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 we just stumble upon Jesus, and then we get more than we ever bargained for. See, the Magi, they just thought they were coming to pay homage to an important person. But what they left with was abiding joy. Now you might say, well, Marsh, I, I thought the Christian life was all about self-denial. Is it pursuing joy and pleasure? Isn't that a selfish thing to do? Well, I can understand if that's your position. I can understand if that's your stance, especially if that's been your exposure to the Christian faith up to this point. But what if that's a false conception? What if that's a false conception of what joy and denial actually are in Christianity? Now, you are right about something. The Christian life does demand that we deny ourselves, but it demands that we deny ourselves of small joys so that we might delight in a greater joy, namely God himself. So I'll make this personal. The the reason I don't indulge all of my sexual appetites is not because I'm denying myself. The reason I don't indulge them is so that I might further feast on God, which is what I was created for. Remember, uh, Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe, maybe you read it. It was actually the first book I I actually read in class. I was more of a math kind of guy, and so finally I couldn't get away with not reading the books the teachers told me to read, so I read this one. And then the movie came out, so it gives some pictures to what this actually looked like. And in the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, one of the characters, one of the kids, his name is Edmund. And Edmund is offered uh, by the Wicked Witch this dessert. You know what the dessert is, don't you? It's Turkish delight. It's a magical food. It looks delicious on the movie. I wanted a whole plate. And what Edmund finds out is that it's highly addictive. And the more he ate, the more he wanted. Even though the food made him sick. And this is exactly what happens when we pursue joy in anything else other than God. So when conceived of in this way... Feeling sick is actually a gift from God. What he's trying to do is alert us to eat something else. Because what God is after is he wants joyful children who aren't sin sick. But be careful here. Don't mistake joy for enthusiasm. 
some of us are naturally enthusiastic. It gives the appearance of joys, but really what it is is that it's veiled optimism. It's really just being high-spirited and playful, kind of like being a human golden retriever. Now, joy is an emotion, but real gospel joy is grounded in the person and work of Jesus Christ. See, as Christians, our joy isn't tied to our circumstances. Our joy is tied to truths. Truths like being unconditionally loved by God. Truths like the promise that a new world is coming where there are no more tears and no more pain, no more poverty, no more sorrow. Truths like being given a wonderful counselor in the Holy Spirit that's with us all the time. Truths like being a part of God's family. And this is what sparks our joy. But the joy that we have because of these truths never remains only an emotion. It gives birth to what happens in verse 11. In verse 11, we see it gives, their, their joy gives birth to worship. And this is always the case. John Piper writes in Desiring God, he says, We praise what we enjoy because the delight is incomplete until it is expressed in joy. Let me say it again. We praise what we enjoy because the delight is incomplete until it is expressed in praise. Think about any of my kids. They open up a gift on Christmas morning. And they love the gift. On the inside, they love the gift, but they're unable to express that. Is that possible? No, is the answer. You go watch a great movie. What do you do? You share about it verbally in conversation. You share about it on social media. Lord knows how much things I've seen about Star Wars the last few days. But when you do this, is it because someone made you? No. It's the natural result to praise what you have enjoyed. We see that in verse 11. The Magi, they enter the house with these overjoyed hearts. They see Jesus, and they see Jesus with his mother. And verse 11 says they fall down and worship him. So their joy in Jesus wasn't just this internal reality. It resulted in something outward, the worship of Jesus. And that's the balance for us, the balance of real, true, biblical, gospel worship. It takes the things of the heart very serious. But it goes further than that. The results are worship and this object of behavior of giving gold and frankincense and myrrh. So, maybe you're here tonight and you're very aware of your joy. And you hear this and you think now you've got to maintain your joy. You pretty much live in this fear of your worship has to be completely authentic. It's got to be completely full. It's got to be unadulterated joy all the time. You're constantly questioning whether or not you really worship because you doubt if your joy is genuine. And what those of us who live in this reality, what we need to hear is that as important as our internal state is, it's just not the whole picture. So even when your joy is lacking, you keep giving your gifts. You keep showing up. You maintain your rhythms, waiting for the fullness of joy to come again. Think about a marriage relationship, even if you're not married. Do people who are married always feel like they are in love? Well, I hate to break it to you, we don't. Does that mean we aren't in love with our spouse? Not necessarily. 
So what do you do when you aren't feeling like you're in love with your spouse? You hang in there. You wait for your duty of loving your spouse to be turned into delight. Now, for some of us, the, the, this, that paragraph right there made no sense to you whatsoever. You're like, that's just not me. You're not all that aware of your internal joy meter. You're much more focused on your outward responsibilities. You hear things like giving gold, frankincense, and myrrh. You're like, man, just tell me what to do and I'll do it. I, I know just because that's what they gave doesn't mean what I have to give, but what am I supposed to do, Marsh? We've got to realize that there's a danger in this way of thinking. In Matthew 15, Jesus quotes a passage from Isaiah. And in that passage, he says, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. It is in vain that they worship me. End quote. Scary for those of us focused on our responsibility, isn't it? In other words, who Jesus is talking to in Matthew 15, what he's telling them is that their external worship is spot on. But their heart is far from him. They lack joy. The people Jesus is talking to, they had willpower. They're willing to perform the outward acts of worship. But that's the problem. The problem is that the will can be present while the heart is not truly engaged. So the engagement of the heart And worship is the coming alive of your feelings, of your emotions, of your affections. And worship that doesn't come from your heart is is in vain. Worship without gladness is not worship. No joy, no worship. So what's it going to take? How do the dutiful among us get our joy to catch up with our behavior? How do the introspective among us hang in there and keep showing up when our inward state is not totally in line with what is required from us outwardly. Think about the Samaritan woman. The Samaritan woman, you find this story in John chapter 4. When Jesus comes upon her, he crosses all kinds of barriers to get to her. She's a woman. He's a man. She's a Samaritan. He's Jewish. He's a religious teacher. She's been married five times, and now she's with a sixth man. So based on these cultural expectations, this conversation should have never taken place. But Jesus is after her. He wants to make her a worshiper who worships in spirit and truth. Just like he wanted the Magi's to be worshipers. Just like he wants me and you to be worshipers. We've got to see what it's going to take for her to worship in spirit and truth. She's got to worship in truth. By being holy in her sexuality. We find out that she, and she does so, and then we find out that she worships in spirit because she sees that the divine has pursued her. She sees that she's been given the living water, and so she leaves the well and she tells everybody in the town about Jesus. See, I I think if we were able to invite the Magi up here, and if I interview them or any of you interview them and you said, hey, did you find Jesus or did Jesus find you? I'm all but positive. They would say, Jesus found me. I, I think if you would have told them a year before they made this dangerous trek, 
I think if you would have said, hey, in a year, you're going to travel 900 miles to this nowhere town you've never heard of in Judea. You're going to find a baby there and you're going to give them extravagant gifts. And when you leave there, you're going to be happier than you've ever been. I think they would have said, what in the world are you smoking? I'm not Jewish. And even if I was, I'm not so sure I'd be willing to fork over that kind of money. I'm not so sure I'd be willing to spend that kind of time in order just to see a baby for Pete's sake. I can go down the street to see a baby. I will, this will never happen. But it did happen. How? It happened because Jesus was intent on making these Magi's worshipers. And Jesus is just as intent as making me and you worshipers here tonight. He's just as committed to this idea of making us worshipers. And that's why over the course of this week and probably even next, we need to be highly attuned to how our idols fail us. How we're eating the Turkish delights of family, of money, of time off. And we'll see just how empty they are. And we'll be tempted to go right back to them and consume more and wish we just had gotten a little bit more. They would have just had a little bit more time with family. If things would have been just a little bit different, if I could have just a couple more days off, then I would be satisfied. Oh, but friends, that's Jesus prodding you to eat at a different feast. That's prodding you to eat at this table here tonight. Let's pray. Oh, Father, make us worshipers. People who worship you in spirit and truth, with great joy and thanksgiving. In Christ's name, amen.